Welcome to the Cashflow Guys Podcast. Today's all about talking legal with Sean Yesner, one of my real estate attorneys, and the topic of discussion is going to be subject to with a little bit about crushing debt sprinkled in there for you. Coming up next. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back for another week. I'm excited as usual. I've got one of my attorneys, Sean Yesner, on with us today. We're going to talk about one of the subjects that I, to some degree, kind of drives me crazy. It's the catch-all prescription by all real estate practitioners to speak. Everybody thinks that there's one recipe for every problem that will solve everything, especially if you've got terrible credit, which is great why I've got Sean on the, on the horn with us today. We're going to talk about subject two. And we're also going to talk a little bit about crushing debt. So maybe those of you that keep using subject two as a crutch because you got terrible credit. Well, you can actually read Sean's book and learn how to solve some of your issues when it comes to credit and, and getting crushed by debt. So Sean, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Crushing debt, the book crushing debt. You just released it. You're on uh, Amazon right now, right? Right. Tell me about it. What's right. the, what's the, uh, the crib notes? So, uh, I- Actually, a lot of the blame for the book uh, falls on your wife, Jill. So anyone who doesn't like the book uh, will blame it on Jill. See, um, she didn't she, write it. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had approached her at uh, PodFest 2017. I had approached Jill and said, you know what? I'm going to write a book about all the stuff that I do. And to her credit, she has held me accountable to that. And so I finally was able to, to pump it out. So what I did was I looked back at my podcast at the crushing debt podcast and then at all the blog content that I had written and all the other topics that I had spoken on and all the all the content that I created and I started to see it fall into chapters so I just put the chapters together smoothed out some of the transitions and there you go you got a book so I I talk about some strategies with negotiating debt I talk about some strategies dealing with student loans dealing with the IRS foreclosures loan modifications short sales. There's a chapter in there on on bankruptcy. Uh, I tried to keep it quick read and easy read. I tell stories in there about different clients. Obviously, I don't mention any clients by name for attorney-client privilege purposes, but uh, you know, telling stories about ways that I've helped out different clients and different tips and strategies. At the end of every chapter, I've got my crushing debt tip, which relates to that chapter. So for example, if you're dealing with a, a creditor, Make sure you keep all your notes. Make sure you keep everything uh, in, in a place where if the creditor uh, tries to come after you for, your, for, for the debt, you've got all your notes there put together. You can, you can counter uh, whatever they're trying to claim. So uh, it is the first book I've ever written, uh, but I'm excited about it. Uh, I, I enjoyed putting it together. I, I enjoyed the, now that it's done, I've enjoyed the process. We still have a few things to clean up. We need to get it to, to an ebook. Uh, we need to uh, clean up some of the stuff to make it an ebook, but it is, it's out for, for purchase right now. Outstanding. I'm excited. Now, a lot of people are probably thinking, why does it matter to me? I don't have bad credit. You know, I'm, I'm good to go. It's, it's, I don't need to read the book. And I'm going to go ahead and answer that one. If you don't mind, Sean, is that when you're out there as a real estate investor, you should be, and, and I've said this several times, you should be solving problems. In other words, every offer you write, or a seller should be solving a problem for the seller. And one of the most common problems, as Sean, I'm sure you could speak on, is that people are that people have got some major issues and it was resolved as it relates to debt. 
And, and in a lot of cases, how you structure the, the offer to buy a house or how you structure that transaction can be a massive help to people far more than just the closing itself. Uh, you can use some of the strategies in your book, I imagine, to maybe use those negotiation tips to reduce somebody's debt. Let's say if we have a, I don't know, Sean, how about a hospital bill? And let's say that's $20,000. Maybe we can read that book, get some tips on how we as a practitioner might be able to help the seller negotiate that debt, or maybe we can negotiate it ourselves with some, some tips and whatnot. Um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think that's a great idea. I think that's a great use of the book. You, you know, mo- some people will look at the book and say, well, I don't have any debt issues. The book's not for me. But right. like you said, negotiation strategies, or if you're talking to somebody that says, I may want to file bankruptcy or I may need to file bankruptcy, there's a chapter in the book about how bankruptcy works. And so you as the investor can understand a little bit about how the bankruptcy works. And I'm not suggesting that anybody give legal advice, but there may be some stuff in the book where you can say, okay, if they want to file a chapter seven, then that's going to affect the house in this way. But if they want to file a chapter 13, a repayment bankruptcy plan, that may affect uh, my deal in, in this way. Uh, or somebody who's dealing with foreclosures or loan modifications, to know how the process works, to be able to tell the borrower, or simply for those investors that want to buy a couple of copies of the book and then say, well, here's some tips from my friend, Sean, that you, Mr. or Mrs. Homeowner, can read about if you have questions about these issues and be the resource to help them, help the people that you want to help in terms of buying their houses or helping them out of their situation by giving them a copy of the book. That's outstanding advice. And that's one of the things I use for real. When I do things with self-directed IRAs, there's a lot of questions, a lot of intricacies with with self-directed IRAs. So one of my attorneys that handle it helps me out with the self-directed IRA administration and dealing with the IRS and whatnot. I give a copy of his book. That's Matt Sorensen. I give a copy of his book. It's called the self-directed IRA handbook. I buy my investor a copy of the book and say, here you go. This will answer all your questions. And if you don't have more questions beyond this book, I'm not an attorney. I'm not going to give you legal advice. But in the back of the book is his contact information. You can call him directly. And I'm, I'm going to do the same thing with your book, Sean. We get out and talk to people with problems, keep a couple copies in the Jeep with me, and we drop one off and say, here, you know, take a look at this. And here's the best part. Reach out to him after the fact. You can actually talk right to the person who wrote the book and get these problems solved. After all, if you're in Florida uh, and you've got a, a legal issue, you need some help, it's within your, your, uh, in your wheelhouse there, Sean, then absolutely let's pull the trigger and make it happen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah. I have, you know, a lot of times I've heard books being described as fancy business cards because right. that's what they are. It's, you know, I'm putting my knowledge out there. I'm putting my expertise out there. I'm putting my experience out there. And if it can help somebody, that's, that's the purpose. If it can't help somebody, then I'm here to answer any questions that they might have around those topics. Absolutely. And I've got questions for you. As a matter of fact, on subject two, we, I hear we, you know, we subject two is a topic that I just think it's beat to death. It's, it's kind of like using the word salsa. I've said that before. It's, it's, I think people just like saying the word subject two. It sounds cool makes them sound trendy, like right. something new that the average person hasn't heard of. Well, it's not anything new, but you as, as an attorney coming up, you worked in a foreclosure mill, so you're familiar with both sides of the transaction as it revolves around uh, mortgage debt. And right. you know, we have some common pitfalls about subject two, but 
Let's first talk about what most investors don't ever seem to explain to the seller. What can go wrong for the seller in a subject two? The first thing to remember, and I'm sure this has been covered um, by you, and I know I've also covered it before as well, but when we say subject two, what we mean is if I, if I own the house and you're the investor that wants to buy my house, but my mortgage happens to be, I have to, happen to have a really good deal. I have a really good interest rate or I have a low balance that's due or, or some combination of factors that makes my mortgage attractive to stay there. You're going to buy my house from me subject to my mortgage. So my mortgage, my note are going to remain, but I'm still going to sell my house to you. So in essence, you're going to make my house payments for me. Now, whether you do that by throwing a tenant in there, whether you do that by holding onto the property for a little bit and then selling it at some point in the future, whatever, but you're going to end up, you as the investor, as the buyer, are going to make sure that my payments as the seller, as the borrower, continue to get uh, paid. Excuse me. And so that's the first biggest issue is that you need to make sure my payments continue to get paid because even though you own the house, if the payments aren't made, the bank's going to come after me because I signed the promissory note, because I signed the mortgage. The bank is going to come after me. Now, they're also going to come after you because you own the property, but they're not coming after you for money. They're just coming after you to have the court rule that the bank's interest in the property through the mortgage is superior to your interest in the property through the deed that I gave you. But then they're actually coming after me for money. So, yeah. So besides the, in addition to the seller's credit being destroyed, I'm sure because they would show late payments and whatnot, you've got the backside of having all that debt slammed against them. And, and so if there's a foreclosure, let's say, the, the investor, let's say it's a house, it's a pretty house where the investor hasn't really had to put any, any work into it. The loss to the investor would really only would begin and end at whatever capital they've got invested in the deal, which in a lot of cases, when you're dealing with people that are taking property subject to, or the, in my opinion, the wrong reasons, they're taking property subject to because they, they themselves cannot qualify for a mortgage, right? Because they haven't done right. The, the right, right thing. They haven't paid their bills. They're a financial train wreck. So the, the reason why the strategy is important for them is because they're not allowed to have a mortgage in the traditional marketplace. They're already proven irresponsible. And then the flip side of this is you're saying, which makes total sense. This is probably where this emanated from is that went back when people, when mortgage rates are low, like right now, a lot of mortgages have been originated the last couple of years that are very low rates and are very attractive. 30 year term. I've got a 30 year term on a four unit building. That's at three and a half percent interest. It's crazy. Why why would I, who would in the right mind would want to pay that debt off? It makes no good sense. I mean, I'll make, I guarantee you, we'll make somebody who's going to be making the very last payment on that loan, not going to pay it off sooner. However, yeah, why pay it off? Why pay it off and put a loan on there at five, six percent when I can continue to pay yours at three? Exactly. So that makes sense. That's a legit reason why you'd want to do that now. So when the loan, get, let's say that the, the the lender triggers the due on sale clause, which can you explain what its due on sale clause clause is for the audience? Yeah. Yeah, so that's the second biggest fear that a lot of investors have or a lot of people have about a subject to deal. Almost every mortgage, certainly every form mortgage from the big banks, has in it what they call a due on sale clause. What that means is I as the lender or let's let's say Bank of the United States 
as the lender um, gives me a mortgage on my on my house. Well, they ran my credit. They looked at my history. They looked at my pay stubs. They looked at my job. They did their underwriting requirements on me. So I'm the borrower. They agreed to give me the loan to buy that house. So if I sell my property to you as a subject to transaction and that loan stays there, the bank then has every right to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't know who Tyler is. Even if Tyler may have another mortgage with us, whatever, we don't know who Tyler is. We don't know what his credit is. We don't know what his job is. Uh, we don't like that he doesn't have a, a W-2 job and that he makes all of his money on real estate investments. We don't like that. So who who is Sean, our borrower, to say that Tyler should now have to repay our loan? And so what the due on sale clause says is that if anybody other than me is the borrower, they can call the loan due. They can say, we don't care that you're current on payments. We can call the loan due. Here's the issue, though, with the due on sale. A lot of people say it's a legal versus illegal thing, and it's not. It's just a, it's a, it's a contractual obligation. Okay. It's not really, it's, it's a contractual obligation. It's not really a, you're not going to get arrested for violating the due on sale clause. Right. Um, but what, what happens is, how's the bank going to know? So a couple different ways that the bank's going to know. Number one, if the payments fall behind, the bank is going to know because they're going to run a title search and they're going to see that Sean conveyed the property to Tyler. That's one way. Right. The other way that they're going to know is when the, the uh, homeowner's insurance becomes due or the taxes become due. And so when the homeowner's insurance becomes due, the bank is going to send the payment to the insurance company and say, Hey, here's to pay for Sean's policy. And the insurance company is going to say, what are you talking about? Sean's policy. Tyler owns the house. And so that could be another way that they find out. And so a lot of the ways that we, that we um, handle that, and I, I'm not going to say that this is proper, that it's legal, that it's illegal, but what a lot of investors do is that's where they come in with, with land trusts or LLCs or property management companies. And they say, hey, look, the property management company is making the payment on behalf of the owner of the house. And so here's all the authorization forms and, and off we go. But that's how the bank is going to find out either an insurance payment or an escrow payment or uh, the, the payments uh, fall behind. And a lot of people then say, well, so what, you know, all I have to do is pay off the loan, reinstate the loan, whatever. You know, I had one situation that I can recall that an investor had purchased a house subject to uh, this was in the, the crash, in the Great Recession, but had the money to catch up the loan, had sold another piece of property that generated the money. And he called the, he had me call the bank on his behalf. You know, hey, we've got the entire amount due to catch up the mortgage. The payments will be current. We'll pay all attorney's fees. We'll pay all late fees. We'll pay all the drive-by fees. We'll pay everything. And the loan will be completely current. And the bank said, no. We're not going to take your reinstatement because there's been a breach of the due on sale clause. Really? Wow. So I, I have had it happen before where the due on sale clause has come back to bite us. I haven't ever seen a lender that forecloses solely based on a due on sale violation. I've never seen that in my life, but I've seen them decline reinstatements. I've seen them decline payoffs. I've seen them decline requests for information. I, it, it can come back to bite us and be a pain in the rear end um, if the payments aren't made. 
typically, like you said, I used to do foreclosure law for the banks and I still represent some private investors that, that hold mortgages, that hold paper, that want me to foreclose. I still do some, a lot of that work, but I have never filed a foreclosure. And uh, as of October of 2018, I've been an attorney for 20 years with 17 of those in foreclosure law. Um, I've never seen a bank uh, file a foreclosure based solely on a due on sale clause. What they'll do is they'll say, we've got a payment breach and we've got a due on sale breach. So we're going to sue on both of those issues. But more than one catalyst, essentially. It, right. And this I kind of ties back to what I was saying about a lot of the folks that I see are, that are exercising subject to as a strategies because they're not responsible enough to get a mortgage all by themselves. It's not that the mortgage is all that great. It's just that they're financial dirt bags. So they're already in, in, in the lenders will laugh them out of the bank. And this is where this type of thing comes in. It's like, you know, you're fine. You could have been fine, but you had to be a knucklehead, not make the mortgage payments in addition to that. I mean, <laughs> talk about putting the seller deeper right. in the quicksand. Well, and then that gives the seller the right to sue the investor. You, you told me one of the things that, you know, so Tyler, you approached me and you told me that everything was going to be okay. And you told me that you would, take care of me. And you told me that you'd help me repair my credit. And now all of that is false. And so I can maybe sue you for fraud. I can sue you for um, misrepresentation. And then for those people that want to play in Florida, Florida has a statutory structure. Florida has a, a section of the consumer protection statute that could make your actions criminal if you didn't give me the right disclosures. I had one client uh, that was trying to buy a piece of property that I don't even think it was in foreclosure. I think a foreclosure was imminent, but the foreclosure hadn't been filed yet. And so the investor bought the property, put a ton of money into it, fixed it up great, uh, went to lease it out. At that point, the former owner went to an attorney. The attorney pulled up this statute that said, hey, you didn't give the borrower, the, the seller rather, the right disclosures. He has every right to take that house back. Thank you for your investment into it. You don't get that money back. Wow. Wow. And so you got to be careful if you're going to invest in, in distressed properties in Florida. Uh, I don't have the statutory site right off the top of my head, but um, I can get you the statutory site if you want to put it into the show notes or we can figure out a way to get that information out to your listeners afterwards, but Absolutely. there is a Florida statute that specifically talks to helping people that are in foreclosure and what you can do and what you can't do and what your disclosures have to look like and, and all that kind of stuff. So that law is, is that kind of along the lines of the, where they're talking about where the foreclosure remedy companies were popping up all over the place after the last crash of those, was that legislation put into place because of that as far as you know, or is yeah, that, is that's exactly. It was put in place um, exactly as we were coming out of the recession. Uh, the recession is when a lot of these laws were put in place, and they're actually called the it's a foreclosure rescue company, is what it's called. I mean, theoretically, I'm a foreclosure rescue company, although I think I, I get out of it because the attorneys gave the other attorneys a safe harbor. Of course, but, they did. Um, <laughs> but, but but I still give out the disclosures and I, you know, I still do everything I'm supposed to do when I'm dealing with someone who's in foreclosure. I don't invest in the properties. I try to, you know, defend the foreclosure and help them that way. Uh, I do have a lot of clients that invest in the properties, but um, I still give them whatever disclosures I feel are appropriate based on the law. 
Very interesting. Now, that's something that I'm sure a lot of investors don't really think about is the consequences. They, they, they think, well, it doesn't matter to me if things go, I know they don't say this out loud, but they probably think in the back of their mind, well, if things go awry, I could just bail and the seller is left hanging and the, you know, no skin off their back, which is unfortunate. People think like that, but I, I know they do. I hear them. Uh, yeah. I hear this going on. But the other side of the coin is, ladies and gents, for those of you that might be thinking that this isn't really a big deal. What if you're getting dragged on the carpet? Now we're talking about you, not necessarily the seller. We, we've opened up a whole new can of worms, so to speak. So good stuff to think about. So, Sean, I'm an investor. Let's say I'm a seller. And I want to I wanna sell my house subject to, do I come to you and you draft the proper documentation to make sure that everything's legit? Or is that something more... Will an attorney better protect the seller or the buyer? I know that's probably not a very fair question, but. Well, and so the typical, you know, Uncle Larry scumbag attorney way to answer that question is I'm going to represent whoever pays me to right. represent them. <laughs> um, but, but um, you know, what I would suggest, so I, I do have two different sets of clients and I get it. I mean, I, I have invested in real estate. I saw the crash come and I got rid of, what I had so that I could focus on the law firm and, and feeding my wife and kids. Right. But I get where the investor mentality is coming from. I, I understand. I represent investors. I like investors as long as the real estate investors remember that they're doing it the right way. So if you have a listener who is a real estate investor and they want to come to me to make sure that we've got all the proper documentation when they find a house subject to, Absolutely. Let's let, I'll help them with that. And then on, on the flip side, if you have a listener who is a seller who says, Hey, so-and-so investor just approached me about buying my house subject to, and I don't necessarily know what to do. Yes. Let's have a conversation. I'm not necessarily going to blow up the short sale deal for the investor, unless I think they're doing something, they're doing something wrong. I'll give you another example. I had a client who is a real estate investor who bought a house subject to uh, this was in maybe 2006 or seven timeframe. Um, and I got a call from an attorney who said, Hey, I represent so-and-so seller, your client investor bought the house. Why should we not sue this investor for taking advantage of my client? I said, well, let's take a look at it. My client put a new roof on the house at his expense. My client put a new AC unit in the house at his expense. My client paid to catch up the mortgage. My client has made and will continue to make every mortgage payment. Where my client went wrong, I think, is that he allowed the seller to stay in the house. However, he's charging the seller less in rent than the seller was paying in a mortgage payment. And he got all this done in the days leading up to the foreclosure sale so that your seller can stay in the house. In what way was your seller taken advantage of? <laughs> I heard, I'll get back to you click and I've never heard from the guy since. Wow. That investor did things the right way. He, he took care of the homeowner and he lived up to what he said he was going to do. That investor did things the right way. And so if that seller had come to me with that deal, I probably would have given it an okay. Now, obviously I'm not going to represent the same investor and the same seller on the same deal. That's a conflict of interest. But um, in that example that I just gave you, if that seller had come to me beforehand and said, here's the deal, I would have said, looks okay to me. Um, in terms of the documentation, a simple far bar contract, the same one that you use when you put on your realtor hat and you sell someone's property, 
Right. That's the same contract that I would use. Um, I would maybe put some language in there. And I think even the contract may have language in there about uh, assumption of the seller's loan. We're not really talking about an assumption because right. that requires the bank to approve it beforehand. But um, I would just use a FAR bar and, and uh, you know, maybe in a couple of other agreements on top of that and we're, and we're good to go. Would it be inappropriate, let's say if I'm an investor, let's say I'm just getting started and I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing and taking care of the seller and not getting the seller and exposing them to any additional liability. So as a means of transparency, and, and not from a representation standpoint, but as a means of transparency, would it make sense for me to bring, I mean, would, it, would there be a problem with you bringing a seller in, sitting down to your, in your office and talking to you about okay, we want to do this transaction. I'm going to pay you as the investor. You're representing me because I guess you can only represent one, one party. Um, right. And you can help handle that transaction. In other words, you can draft the paperwork, any additional clauses or, or, or disclosures yeah. or things like that. Is that something that you can facilitate with the seller sitting yes. there? So if, now what if they have questions? What if the seller has questions? Can you answer them or do you, they have to go get their own attorney? How's, what's that look like? Well, so theoretically, um, Anything, if the buyer is my client and I'm sitting there with the buyer, there's attorney-client privilege there. We want to be real careful that the seller knows that I am not representing the seller. At the same time, if the seller's asking me questions, I'm going to answer them honestly. If the buyer, if the investor has a problem with me honestly answering the seller's questions, then maybe it's an investor that I may not want to represent. So. I will tell them honestly, yes, this means the, the, the buyer, the investor is going to own your house. There, yes, this does mean that there might be some reliance on you. Uh, Mr. Seller might have some reliance on the investor buyer to make your mortgage payments for you. And, you know, I, I, I don't think it's fair to try to shy away from those questions or hide the ball. If you're an investor and you can't answer your seller's questions honestly, why are you an investor? Now, at the same time, I'm not going to volunteer information. If they ask me a question, I'll answer it honestly, but sure. I'm not going to sit down and the first thing out of my mouth is, hey, you don't own your house anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to do that, but, but I'll answer honestly. If I'm the investor and I'm, I'm the buy, investor buyer and, I'm, and you, I've hired you as my attorney and the question comes up, hey, Sean, should I make the payments? The seller wants me to make payments directly to them instead of to the mortgage company. Yes, no, or indifferent. Any thoughts on that? I would, yeah, I would say no, because how then can you, you're now the owner of the property. Now the seller's got skin in the game because if the payments aren't made, like we said, the seller's going to be the one that gets sued. Right. But if, if you're the investor and you're sitting in my office and you say, hey, the seller wants me to pay them, what assurances do we have that the seller's going to pay the mortgage? My so exactly. I would, now, <laughs> Again, who's paying me? If I'm sitting there with the seller <laughs> and the seller says, should I be? I'm going to tell him, yeah, you should be in control because you're the who, who better to know that the payments are going to be made other than you. Absolutely. Um, but at the same time, you know, if, if I'm the seller, I make sure that if, if whoever I'm representing, I'm going to want them to be in control of making sure payments are made. And look, there's got to be a little bit of trust between these parties because someone is going to be responsible for making the payments and they need to make sure that payments are made regularly. 
as far as actually making the payment, is that, is it, I mean, I'm sure the risk is there, but what's the likelihood if, if the check comes over from, I don't know, uh, Jimmy's house flipping company, LLC over to bank of America. Is that legit? I mean, is, are we going to have problems or are we basically, am, am I guessing it's just a risk you have to take type of thing? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a combination of both. So on the one hand, I think it's a risk you got to take. Um, I think as long as you're referencing the loan number or the account number on the check, I don't think, I think the process, if we're talking about Bank of America, Regions, Wells, you know, all the big banks, I think their processes are so automated that that would never, that would never even register on their radar. They got a right. check, it referenced loan one, two, three, we pay loan one, two, three, we move on. Where it may make a difference is that some of the private guys, some of the smaller lenders, maybe the credit unions, although a lot of the big credit unions are just as systematized as the banks. Um, so I don't think it matters that much, but there is a chance. So the other way that we do that is you get the seller to sign a, an authorization that says ABC House Flipping Company LLC is going to be managing my, my property for me. So can expect payments to come from them. You send that to the bank. And then if the bank does question it, Hey, wait, we got the seller to sign a letter that says payments are coming from ABC house flipping company. So that that's okay. It may still trigger a red flag. It may still trigger the bank to take a closer look. But again, I think if they're being paid, they're, they're fat and happy. They don't care. End of the day, if I do something silly and I wind up tripping or tripping the, uh, notifying, get triggering the do on sale clause in Florida. I know you can't really speak in other States, but what's, is this like they can come rappelling down from the heavens the next night and drag, <laughs> drag my keys out of my pocket? Or is this a, do I got a year to sort this situation out or do they have to foreclose? What's yeah. yeah. We're not talking about a car. So if you don't make your car payments, you could walk into your driveway and note that it got hooked in the middle of the night. See the oil spot. No one's going to, yeah, no one's going to hook up your house and drag it away. They will foreclose. They'll start a foreclosure. So you'll, you have to get a demand letter based on the terms of the contract. You have to get a demand letter that says, here's the breach. You are eligible to cure. You're not eligible to cure for whatever reason. Um, and you know, you get that default letter and then the foreclosure comes. We're still seeing foreclosure timelines of nine months, eight months, 10 months in that range. A lot of times I can get involved and extend it to a year or more. A lot of the foreclosure defenses that we used to use don't hold as much water with the judges and the courts anymore. So um, there is an element of we got to be, we got to make sure that our defenses are legitimate, but typically I can keep it postponed um, in that 12, 13, 14 month range. And that's another consideration. If you're an investor that's interested in buying this house, one of the things that you need to factor into your analysis is, hey, if the bank finds out and they pull the trigger on a due on sale default, is there enough equity in this house that I can cash out, that I can sell it, that I can put a new loan on it? Well, I mean, whatever. If you, uh, if you buy a house that's break even or upside down on a subject to basis, that's sort of a recipe for disaster if things go south, because now you can't get rid of, now you're, you're having to do a short sale of somebody else's loan. It's, it's rarely going to work out. I was going to say, how do you work that out? It's like, who, who, who's the one that would be signing all that paperwork? I guess the owner of the house, right? Yeah. And typically when I'm talking to somebody in that kind of a situation, 
my advice is you've got to get the cooperation of the seller, even if that means you pay for the cooperation of the seller. If you need to kick them a couple of grand so that they'll cooperate and fill out paperwork, you got to do what you got to do. Otherwise, you could face liability like we've been talking about. The seller could come back and say, you promised me you were going to keep this current. You promised me you were going to fix my credit. You promised me I wasn't going to lose this house in foreclosure. And now all of that's not true. And, you know, did you follow the foreclosure uh, rescue laws and, and on and on and on and on and on. Wow. That's not good. Well, that can, that can turn into a, a real pile real quick. Well, that, yeah. Wow. That's good stuff. Sean, as always, you provided a ton of value today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I was just looking on Amazon and I just noticed something while we were going through this episode that you're available, your podcast, you're going to teach me how to do this when we hang up here. Your podcast is also available through Alexa, isn't it? Crushing Debt Podcast. Yeah. So I, I, all the artificial intelligence ladies love me. Alexa, Siri, uh, Google, they all, it, it, the podcast should be available on all of the different artificial intelligence ladies. <laughs> I assume they're ladies. I have no idea. I love that. And here I'm the one giving you advice on, on marketing. And realistically, I'm finding out that you've got me beat in that department. <laughs> that's outstanding. <laughs> so that's it is, that, that actually, that came from, that came from this past podcast, podcast 2018. Uh, I hooked up with the guys at Lipson, which is where I host my show. And, and they were the ones that helped me build the uh, Alexa skill. So I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about it when we're done. Absolutely. Sounds great. And also, ladies and gentlemen, if you're interested in picking up the book, Crushing Debt, and again, even if you don't have a debt issue, which I think most a lot of people do, most people do in this country have a, some sort of a debt issue, at least have the knowledge. Take the time to read the book. Get the knowledge. When you're out there in the field talking to your sellers, or in a lot of cases, also talking to your buyers, because if you're flipping houses or you're a landlord, maybe you're transitioning them into one of your properties to take over as the owner or what have you, having this, this information or having access to this information can make the difference between getting a deal done and not getting a deal done. At the end of the day, spend 20 bucks, hand them a copy, go on Amazon, send them a, send them a copy. And let me tell you, if you're out there as a real estate investor, you've got competition, right? If you're dealing with properties that are on the market or they're advertised by others or the seller's trying to sell it by owner, you're not the only game in town. So if you walk in and hand them a book on how to uh, uh, crushing debt, that could be a home run. That could be what you need to get your offer approved and, and down the road. So, Sean, thanks so much for coming out. I appreciate it. And uh, anything you want to add before we wrap? Appreciate it. Um, uh, I'm a huge fan of yours. I'm a huge fan of, of Cashflow Guys. I know I've listened to every episode since episode one. I do subscribe to the show. Uh, I, I think this is my second or third time on. I don't recall. I but I appreciate it. Um, and so, yeah, no, I, I always I appreciate the information and I appreciate you having me on. Always a pleasure, Sean. And ladies and gentlemen, if you sign up for the Mailbox Money Mastermind, those of you that have signed up, you get a breakout session. We do a breakout session with Sean. We've got some recorded from the last time, loaded with information, talking about contracts and all kinds of different stuff that real estate investors need to know. That stays within the Mail Mailbox Money Mastermind. The only way to get access to it is to head on over to mailboxmoneymastermind.com, get registered, get signed up, and start learning to earn. And right there, folks, I'm going to leave it right there. I hope you guys have a great week, and we'll catch up with you next time. This concludes today's episode. You don't have to wait till the next episode to learn to earn. Head over to cashflowguys.com and contact Tyler and his team for more powerful tips and ideas so you can start generating multiple streams of income and escape the rat race.